0: Hello, everybody. This is Tyler with Grassroots Fabric Pots, and today I have Steve with Potent Ponics. This has been a uh, a very important podcast um, that I've been wanting to put out because we get so many different requests about SIP systems and aquifers and aquaponics and, and people wanting to incorporate our beds and pots into this. Um, and this has been a topic that's been hit up to us a couple of times in the comments uh, for the podcast is to dig into aquaponics. And, and before, I would just... Uh, email those people a link to Steve's website and say, Hey, everything you need to know is going to be right here. Check out his stuff, check out his information. Uh, so without any further ado, this is Steve from, from Potent Ponics, And thank you very much, sir, for, for coming on today.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, for those of you guys that don't know, I'm the, the owner of Potent Ponics. I founded the company when, uh, when I split off from Aquaponics Source back in 2016. And uh, have since uh, gone on to form my own consulting company and work uh, everywhere from Jamaica to Africa to uh, across North America and and even some other places as well. So um, we help teach people uh, how to set up their aquaponics facilities, um, be it uh, large scale vegetable or cannabis, mainly cannabis, but we do do some vegetable work. Uh, And then we also, I also host the Growing With Vicious podcast. Uh, We try to do one to two episodes a week of educational uh, aquaponic and cannabis content with interviews from people from around the world, uh, industry experts, scientists, professors, um, and just generally knowledgeable people that can have uh, something valuable to share with our community, be it living soil, aquaponics, or um, uh, anything else on that kind of spectrum. You know, we're all very much aligned. You have either aquatic living soil or terrestrial living soil. At the end of the day, it's living soil. So...
0: Ooh, I see that's something I haven't had. Terrestrial living soil or what was you know, aqua living soil? What did you say?
1: Aquatic living soil. That's kind of how we like to think of aquaponics because the mineralization processes are much more similar to a soil matrix in terms of chemistry than they are a, a hydroponic solution.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So um, I know you had a pretty big facility that you were setting up there in, in Oklahoma, right?
1: Yeah, so I actually work uh, with Vertica Aquaponics. They're the largest current aquaponic uh, cannabis producer in the state. I trained up their head grower. I did a bunch of consulting for them to help get them on the right track. So um, they're one of the people that I I work pretty closely closely with. If you want to see a tour of their farm, uh, we have more than one video up on my YouTube channel of of different parts of their farm and and, uh, all kinds of different fun stuff. Um, but I also used to work with um, the aquaponics source. And back in the aquaponics source days, uh, we did all different types of testing with trying to figure out what's the best way to grow uh, cannabis and other high value, high fruiting crops, um, You know, even non-cannabis crops uh, in um, aquaponics. Like what's the best way to maximize production? So we tried waking beds, which would also be called SIPs. We tried um, uh, you know, uh, dual root zone pots, which is kind of a more advanced version of that. Um, we tried... Um, media beds, DWC, vertical towers, you know, uh, Dutch buckets, you know, you name it. We uh, uh, we, we tried it, uh, just kind of in a side by side comparison. Um, we found a bunch of different cool things that you can do with wicking beds and sips that you can't do with other things. And then we also found some kind of problems that we had to kind of overcome. So. Um, some of the biggest strengths that we found for doing sips and um, wicking beds uh, is the other name that people like to call them, is for root crops. If I want to grow root crops in aquaponics, uh, traditionally they, those don't really develop well in an aquatic solution. They, they, they simply don't have the tension. The the outer skin of the roots and the tubers isn't really made to be in that aquatic of an environment. So uh, it really needs to have that drier space. So we were able to put those uh, uh, fabric pots in the top of the media beds to where the flood and drain level would just kiss the bottom of it. Just very, you know, maybe just a tiny little bit to wick the water up and function just like a sips bed in a media bed so that you could quickly hot swap carrots, potatoes, beets and other things. Uh, and it allow to have that even soil pressure to get that proper uh, formation of those tuber crops. Uh, and really have that nice marketability and that you know the, the proper shape that people want to buy when they're actually going uh for for commercial type of uh, uh, market so that was a, a great way for us to grow and adapt existing systems to producing root crops in aquaponics and if you are looking for a way to grow root crops in your aquaponics facility and you have some media beds or even wicking beds uh, not wicking beds a uh, dwc and you can sit them on the holes that you have on your raft beds you can absolutely allow that to wick up and um uh, you know, function in that same type of manner and allow you to grow root crops that you not, traditionally are told you can't grow at aquaponics. Um, so that was a super cool thing. Um, but when we tried it with cannabis, we ran into some challenges that we had to kind of figure out. And it took us a little while, but we figured it out. So um, uh, if you ever look at a cannabis plant, when it starts to finish off, um uh late into flower it starts to drop off some of its old fan leaves it just doesn't need them anymore right Mm -hmm. well it also starts to 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 do that with its root system it starts to pull back its root system it doesn't need the entire root system the same way that the top part of the plant's doing it the bottom part of the plant's doing it Mm. Uh, but the wonderful soil microbes that you have in your uh Um, uh, and, and, and the aquatic microbes that you have in your sips will actually start to feed on those roots, and that can become a problem. So what we were having is, you know, two to three weeks out right before harvest, the plant would just wilt because of that, you know, the plant's basically finishing off, and the microbes are doing what they're supposed to, but they're getting, you know, they're kind of jumping the gun. We did that for three or four runs and kind of gave up on it for a while, and then I got really into natural farming and learned a lot more about lactobacillus dosing and started hybridizing octobacillus dosing with our aquaponics and as soon as we started doing it and getting the microbial balance right and and dosing with that it really made a big difference in terms of, of eliminating that issue and we were able to actually finish off plants um, without having the the root issues um, uh, of very very late into flower but traditionally i think that's what a lot of people are finding as a challenge is late late into flower they're having wilting issues uh, mainly for root for root problems and that's That was been our solution is that, you know, by having a competitive excluder like lactobacillus or or some other, you know, fairly aggressive but, but non-pathogenic microbe that can help, you know, pick up the slack right for that little time window at the end really seems to make Now, traditionally, a lot of people say don't dose lactobacillus right there at the end, but if you're doing it with sips and you're just dosing it into the water to help prevent that type of system, yeah. there's absolutely no negative issue. The main issue with lactobacillus uh, and flour, which it kind of gets misconstrued a lot is that you shouldn't spray the plants in flower, especially after uh, for the last four weeks because those lactobacillus can remain present and then show up on your plate counts for microbials um so because and they're not bad they're just the present right so yeah but they're actually little pac-man going around eating mold spores and anything else that might affect the plant at the end so they're keeping the plant clean they're just you know present so that that can cause issues depending on your state's level of microbial testing
0: yeah because they don't do a great job of deciphering what's good what's bad it's just we see something there we don't want it there by you know we're not good enough so
1: that's uh, that's why you can just hit that with a quick blast of uvc or uh you know some other thing just to kill any living microbes and uh and make sure that your plate counts come out clean especially if you know that you're doing it right and you're not you know you're not going to have any chance of, of anything bad being on there
0: yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like most of the people doing these systems are small at home guys that want to set up a system that you can walk away from and just go on a vacation for a week or so and just check up on their bed and be like, okay, we're full of water. We're this, we're that. Everything's looking good. I'm going to take off for a while. And for me, I think the original one for that was like people go into blue mat systems, you know, and stuff like that. So um, what do you think the viability of that is? Or how could we set up a system like that we can walk away from?
1: well that's one of the nicest things about sips and even with our uh, uh, dual root zone setup that i'm a big fan of um, which you can absolutely do by just taking one of your cloth pots and sticking it on top of a a media bed and letting the roots grow through or or even sitting them on top of holes above dwc and letting the roots grow through Um, you can have a a, you know it's the simplest way to set up a dual root zone uh, type plant setup Um, but um those that you aren't aware it's having soil above a, a, an aqueous solution, either flood and drain or DWC, um, both both work. Um, but the idea is to kind of have two separate zones of control. Um, so uh, you have a dry part study, and a wet
0: part, pretty much.
1: And then you can top water and, and adjust the top area, you know, kind of as needed, um, just to maintain minimal moisture level um, to keep those roots happy and the fungi happy and everything else. But um, uh, with the sips. Uh, it, you, you're trying to maintain that constant moisture. So one of the other cool things that we were able to figure out with the SIPs, if you're trying to maximize profitability, especially on a commercial scale, and you don't want to grow cannabis, um, osha root and uh, wasabi both have to have very specific and constant moisture levels. They don't want too, hot, too wet or too dry uh, or the, the symbiotic uh, fungi and bacteria or whatever it is that, that they need to survive. Um, uh, dies, right? And once that dies, the plant dies. You see this, especially with osha root, like medicinal osha, um, which is a very powerful antiviral drug that you can grow. And it's almost exclusively wild harvested or wildcrafted. crafted. So um, we were able to uh, do this at a commercial scale for one of our clients when I worked at the aquaponics Source, by simply taking an inoculant that we got from a wild uh, patch that I knew happened to know of in Colorado. We basically made an IMO out of the soil uh, from that uh, and kept it wet. Um, and, and inoculated the basically just made it quickly mixed it with a, a bunch of water and used it to inoculate the bed, but we inoculated all of them and they grew like gangbusters, because we could maintain that constant moisture they were just sitting in, in about a, a quarter inch to half inch of water that flowed through the bottom that constantly brought fresh aquaponics water through this channel. And then all the cloth pots were sitting in there and then the roots were planted at the right height in that pot to have the right moisture level. And then they were able to kind of do their thing. And man, we had such good success with that. And I think that there's a lot of other, you know, marsh type crops that, you know, are highly valuable that you know other people could find a, you know, a similar type technique or similar type method on, but wasabi and osha root are the first two that come to mind.
0: Mm -hmm. So, do you think there's a way of doing this SIP system just by itself and maintaining a water level in the bottom of some sort of a container like a, like an aquifer and not have fish involved? Or um...
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, you absolutely can. I just think that you need to address the microbial end of it the same way that we did with the aquaponics. I think as long as you did the right of mi- microbial inoculants, use lactobacillus inoculants from, from KNF, uh, maybe even a little liquid IMO uh, to help maintain that you know, um, uh, positive balance of, of beneficial microbes in that setup. I think that's really the key to making it work uh, and where a lot of people maybe missed that. And it took me quite a few years to kind of, through trial and error, I mean, I killed quite a few plants. And, I'm you know, I'll, I'll admit that here that, you know, that was through through trial and error to figure that out. So, But once <laughs> we started doing that, we stopped having those issues.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, I immediately think of, you know, water molds popping up you know and stuff like that and i had one guy he said he had a way of completely draining his system and refilling it and he did that once a week and then did his lactobacillus and his knf stuff and it sounded like that was a great plan but it just kind of seems scary to like seal up water underneath the bed or or have no way of of evacuating it or clearing it
1: out yeah i think that would be the biggest thing that i would want is just to have some type of drain to where if i ever wanted to flush it out or if I ever i did have a problem i could just Flush it out with a peroxide or a lactobac- heavy lactobacillus, just to quick clean stuff out, and uh, and then reset if I had a problem. Um, There's a solution again right there. if you if you have a good healthy liquid IMO and a good healthy um, you know labs culture. I, I really have never seen anything that survives those. I mean, it, <laughs> I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but I haven't yeah. seen it.
0: The al, al- competition is our al- competitive nation of that those microbes is just hard to compete with. I guess.
1: Absolutely. Lactobacillus will eat E. coli, salmonella, listeria, and that's documented in agriculture. In fact, we did a test to see um, at Kentucky State University, a gentleman that I I occasionally do projects with, um, Joe Pate, uh, did a test where they're trying to figure out, okay, well, just adding lactobacillus to an aquaponic system, what does that do to the plants? What does that do to the fish? Just in terms of of gross growth rate. And they found that it was a a 15 to 22 percent growth rate uh, on the fish, and a similar growth rate increase on the plants. And it was just an enormous impact. And a, a lot of it came down to two factors. One, the high fat content by giving the curds to the fish. <laughs> and it's fat protein, basically, is what the leftover cheese is uh, as a byproduct for making the stuff. And then two, the increase in vitamin B from the um, uh, the vitamin B complexes from the lactobacillus. Vitamin B is a, a, a byproduct of lactobacillus when they eat, eat milk, right? So, if you increase the um, vitamin B uh, complexes, you can increase the growth uh, increase uh, from labs. So, if you use things like kefir and you uh, and other lactobacillus sources, even probiotics from the drugstore, and you you just have as basically shotgun blast as many lactobacillus species as you can when you're making that lab and making that kefir uh, and the whey uh, and then using that whey with all that really um, wide-ranging vitamin B complex, that really helps the growth acceleration across the board in the plants that's in a uniform way and not, you know, kind of a feeling kind of screwed up or stretched way.
0: Okay. So if you were given an unlimited budget and um, needed to set up a let's say a smaller situation, let's say a 10 by 10 tent or a garage. And you know everything you know now and you have all the access to everything you could ever want. um, And you need to produce some cannabis. Um, How would that look? How would that room look? And would it be indoors? Would it be outdoors? Would it be in a greenhouse? What would be the perfect situation?
1: Yeah, so I'm a big fan of greenhouse production. I think that's kind of the best of both worlds. It gives you the best biocontrol um, with the best climate control. And uh, you can kind of do uh, mess with the VPD a little bit more inside of a greenhouse, the same way you would an indoor facility um, while still having access to the sun and the wide light spectrum, as well as the cheaper production, you know, especially because yeah. I'll probably end up having to pay the bill at the end of the day for the overhead. But that's really where. That's really where it would help out quite a bit uh, as far as that goes. Um, but uh, greenhouses is really where I think that you have the, the best price point long-term um, as well. Um, you know, you have, again, with biosecurity and exports long-term, Europe's going to want to see everything in greenhouses for the most part for smokable product for the foreseeable future. Wow. I think a lot of other markets are going to have that same type of thing where they have E, they're going to want to follow EU GMP or something similar. So I think that that is going to, you know, dramatically affect, you um, Production. Uh, you know, production. And lot, a lot of US producers really aren't set up to do that yet. Uh, and they're not looking forward in that kind of way. So um, that really is the, to me, the best production. That and then supplemental LEDs, obviously, um, with aquaponics would be uh, still, you know, we, we see as much as a 300% increase in total terpenes uh, against soil controls when we grow with aquaponics. So Um, you know, on average 50 to 75%, but sometimes way above that. So um, that alone, and that has to do with the fact that we have terrestrial microbes and aquatic microbes, like we were talking about earlier, and each of them stimulate the plant's immune system differently. And at the end of the day, that's what terpenes are, is a response in the plant's immune system to an environmental factor. That's all terpenes are. Um, So the best way to increase your total terpenes is to increase the total number of non-pathogenic microbes to your plant's root system. Um, That's the the best way to increase terps. Not all the special sauces, not all the fancy stuff that's sold to you, not all the sugars. Um, While the sugars help a little bit, um, you have to have a reason for the plant to try and make that compound. It's not just going to start making compounds for something it doesn't feel is present. So if you introduce, you know, non-pathogenic fungi, not, uh, like mycorrhizae uh, or uh, other types of things to the root system, that's why IMO does such a good increase in flavor and terpene production is because it's this wide range of, of saprophytic fungi that you know very much heavily stimulate the uh, uh, the plant's immune system, along with you know producing chitinase and a whole bunch of other stuff that that gets produced out of IMO. So um, that's the reason why those plants produce more terpenes. That's why they taste better, and that's why those inputs work. Not just because you know someone put. Grew them in a strawberry field, or someone put sugar on it, or some of the other different myths that are out there on chirps.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Of everybody, like, you know, I, I feel like, oh, it's the sugar doing it, and the plants absorbing sugar. It's like, no, the microbes are absorbing what we're feeding it and then the plant is absorbing those microbes, uh, taking what they need from it, from what I've learned, and then letting those microbes go with a marching order of what they need more of. And if they can easily get what they need more of, it's just like a constant cycle, cycle, which is in turn cycling of nutrients. Um, so yeah, okay. Yeah.
1: The sugar basically causes a bacteria orgy where they just breed like crazy because they have steak and ice cream and, you know, all the best high end food. And then they burn out and they run out of all that food because all the sugar gets used up and they've replicated enough times. And all that sugar also has lots of carbon. So that helps a lot with their own, you know, biomass construction. Um, and then from there, now they run out of that. Now they have to go back to feeding <laughs> on their mineralizing microbial processes so if it's breaking down phosphorus or potassium or silica or whatever now they have to kind of go back to what they're supposed to be doing and now you have this massive population of microbes that are capable of doing that thing whatever it is in the microbial chain Um, and and that's kind of how that works
0: yeah so that goes back to why you need a divorce diverse divorce diverse kind of food and diverse food source for them to be feeding on all kinds of different stuff so they can constantly be feeding on all kinds of different stuff that makes a lot of sense to me. So go a little bit more into how you would set this kind of place up. Are we going to do uh, any sort of wicking beds, sipping beds? What would you, in your mind, what would be the perfect setup?
1: Yeah. So what I would do is I would have one row, maybe flood and drain for growing um, uh, cannabis or some of my other stuff for, that I like to grow, just my particular way with the root zones, maybe some fruit trees. And then I would do a, a row of um, uh, wicking beds or root crops and fruit trees. I find fruit trees do really well, banana trees do really well. I'm sorry, you didn't mean to bump me. uh, Fruit trees uh, do really well in, in wicking beds and bigger wicking beds, especially if you have a little bit more aeration in the bottom portion of it. Um, uh, they can do very well uh, in, in that type of scenario. Um, again, as long as you have that uh, extra aeration in that lowest layer. We were able to do quite a few different fruit trees with the wicking pots. Uh, the larger scale wicking pots um, in aquaponics. Uh, We did um, pawpaw trees. We had banana trees. I'm trying to think what the other two species were. Saturn peaches and uh, cherry (laughs) trees was the other one.
0: Wow. Wow. And you um, feel that there is, uh, which I do, because I do the same thing because of space and stuff like that, of growing. I think a lot of people were afraid just to get it out, afraid of growing other crops with cannabis. And I think that's—I think you've got a better diversity. Or you've got a better, better situation going on when those other plants are there around your cannabis.
1: Oh yeah, no, I think you absolutely should grow other crops with cannabis. You just need to be careful as to which ones. So, like, avoid anything from the squash family. They can transfer viroids uh, and other things really easily. Same thing with nightshades. Um, the only time I would recommend nightshades with cannabis. Uh, it would be if you're dealing with a lot of um, gophers, like if you're in San Diego or LA and you have pocket gophers and stuff like that. If you grow ground cherries or cocona or um, some of the other um, like ground creeping nightshades that, that are more of like a ground cover, they're actually really good at um, deterring those guys. They have uh, histamines in the roots and, and they'll intermix with the cannabis roots. They won't really affect your cannabis in any way. Um, just keep an eye on them a little bit for white fly because they will attract white fly a little bit um, being a, a ground covered uh, nightshade uh, that's really the only vector to really keep out uh, an eye on them for but um, they can be a great deterrent for those that you can kind of interspace if you want a more organic control method to try and help deter them as much as possible. Um, uh, they really are a, a good option for that. Now, uh, I'm a huge fan of companion planting. If I if I do any acreage, I, I absolutely recommend. You know, we're we'll, we're gonna put the drip lines in and everything, put the cannabis in there. We're gonna put cover crop down and protect the soil because a green cover crop is gonna keep that soil, you know, an extra three to eight degrees cooler than that bare soil will be, or even more, depending on how hot the day is. Uh, not only that, but all those mycorrhizal fungi are holding water in the soil by the cannabis roots. They're exchanging minerals. With the fungi that the cannabis uh, utilizes and everything else, so they're they're doing nothing but benefit the plant. Uh, as long as you keep your pests off of them and, and just keep an eye on and making sure that they're not vectoring anything. I'm not a big fan of mint. I find mint attracts spider mites and um, and whitefly uh, quite readily. Um, but uh, a good ones are parsley, thyme, rosemary, um, uh, a ground, ro- a creeping rosemary is really good. Um, I'm trying to think stuff that we've used lately. Chamomile is another good one that's just super stinky. The bugs don't like it uh, and grows really well as a ground cover. So, you know, you can really diversify and even grow some herbs that you could harvest in the off-season and resell, you know, even through the winter time and all that stuff. And rosemary, it grows right through the winter. So you can harvest that in January, February if you get a warm spell and and resell that, you know, when you're not able to even... Make a dime off the property normally, so it can offer people, you know, additional revenue streams even in the off season, depending on what it is that you're growing and where you're growing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and make you more beneficial to the community as well. I know, um, you know, if you came onto a farm that was covered in food and and vegetables and all this other stuff, you you probably don't see the cannabis just sticking out like you would and when you fly over a normal farm in Northern California and you see pots and rows and plants and clearly a cannabis farm. you know, Incorporating all of these other plants in there and making it more of a natural garden, you probably wouldn't even see some of these cannabis plants that are monstering out in the middle of this microbial frenzy of amazingness.
1: <laughs> yeah, certainly not from a satellite view. It definitely blends in a lot more
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And helps you out with erosion and helps you out with, you know, making something sustainable that you can live off of too.
1: Not only that, but like all those little flowering crops and uh, the roots, you know, it's nice to come out there and see butterflies and pollinators and all the rest. You know, you feel like you're, you're helping with the rest of the, the ecosystem in your area. You're not, you know, being part of the problem.
0: Yeah, you could be a stopping point in between where those bees are naturally traveling from, and now they get to stop and take a rest, pollinate with your stuff, and then get back to the hive. You know, you could be surprised at how beneficial you could be to your local system,
1: I think. Oh, yeah, it's also really good too. You can always, uh, you know, do a late summer or early fall uh, uh, seed throw, uh, especially for wildflowers too, can be great for. Um, uh, the uh, uh, can be really beneficial for pollinators um, late in the season. In fact, there's a lot of different uh, crop uh, people doing cover crops that um, uh, uh, really late in the season and throwing extra seed down. We actually do it as a as soak for nitrogen mm. um, to help hold nitrogen from the plants late in the flower at big scale. You know, it helps basically reduce that end level if we think it might be a little bit too high. Um, uh, it's kind of an emergency action that you can take that doesn't cost all that much. Uh, especially when you're dealing with acreage Um, uh, or again, depending on rain and everything else. But um, uh, this can uh, absolutely be a great way to uh, provide extra pollen late, late in the season for those pollinators that are really struggling in, in September and October right before, you know, they're going dormant for the season.
0: Oh yeah. Sounds like it could be a big help um so going back to this system that you're creating in this greenhouse um we've got we've talked about a couple different rows there um are you always going to be growing the same stuff in the same spots or are you having to move things around obviously you're not going to move around a fruit tree you're going to plant that there and it's going to it's going to stay there for years i'm guessing right
1: Yeah. So if I was growing, um, uh, crops that I felt like were, you know, specifically mycorrhizal dependent, I think I would definitely grow them in the same beds. Like OSHA, I would always grow in the same bed. Uh, and a couple of other more aquatic wasabi, I would, I would grow in the same bed, for you know, one of the beds like, like you have behind you there. Um, and, uh, that would be one of the, uh, the, the way that I would do that. Um, and then, um, uh, as far as the rest yeah I mean with with the way that I grow with aquaponics at least we don't really have to tra- you know rotate anything for any reason like that um, one of the other things that we do like using sips for is um, so in aquaponics occasionally you're going to have to dump you know maybe two to five percent of your water per year just to have a little bit of flow through through the system you know you do have the little bit of buildup of sodium and a couple of other things uh, in the system so you do need to worry about that. So uh, that's something that you have to worry about. So what we'll do is we'll take and put wicking beds out in front of a lot of these cannabis facilities as a public grow space, and we'll put cucumbers or pumpkins or tomatoes or just kind of a free community garden um, that we just use with the runoff from our you know heavily heavily uh, fertilized aquaponics system from the fish waste. So.
0: Okay. And can you tear into how you would quickly build out a SIP system. What would that look like as far as the horizons go from the bottom to the top?
1: Sure. So I would take a a nice watertight bed uh, and then I'd put an L-shaped pipe in from one end, one corner to the other. So I would have it go down uh, with a 90 degree and then over with holes in it to evenly distribute the water. Uh, and then put a cap on it so that I could always top off the water and make it simple. Uh, alternatively, you could run like a Y and have it go down with maybe a 45, two 45s if, you're really, if it was a really wide bed or something like that. But uh, traditionally, just one that goes from one end to the other cattywampus or whoever you want to say at 45 degree mm-hmm. angle from one to the other. Uh, and then like pour your water down there from your your system. Uh, that that's that's how that would work. And then you would put a layer of lava rock or gravel or you know other uh, pH neutral type media. Um, I'm a big fan of lava rock, uh, especially the lava rock they use for like fire pits and stuff like that. Yeah, you I
0: love that stuff.
1: Two to three hundred dollars a super sack, depending on where you are in the country. Uh, and, you know, extremely cost-effective for, for large-scale, uh, and then put that across the bottom, maybe one to two inches, just so that I knew, you know, where um, where that level was, and, and have a way that on the outside to where I could tell 100% um, uh, what that level is as well. If it's a really big bed or a commercial bed, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll actually just put a, a tap on the side with a valve, and we'll just leave <laughs> that open when I'm filling, so I'll just take the hose from the system, fill it into the, the top of the L and flood it up until it starts flowing out at, at that level. That level is set right at the cloth, right below the cloth level so that you have that wicking action. And then you know that, Hey, that you haven't overfilled it. And it kind of prevents you from ever accidentally overfilling it and running into a situation where now it's completely flooded and you can't do anything about it because it happens to people, right? Sometimes. Oh so. yeah.
0: You got wait three weeks for it to dry out.
1: Yeah, you don't want to have to deal with that because it tends to get really sulfury and it stinks and it's not good. So you don't want to end up in that scenario. So uh, by putting that safety valve on it, if you do have the option, um, can help quite a bit. But if not, you can go ahead and just you know be careful and measure out the number of gallons or do the quick dirty math on, on what the displacement is. Usually with lava rock, you're looking at around a 50% displacement You know, for, for your math purposes for water. So you know, have the number of gallons you think it is. And that's probably how much it is approximately for filling. And then I'd put a layer of cloth. Uh, if it was a longer term bed, like a weed barrier or something like that, just to make sure that those roots don't, you know, penetrate that and that water that that soil gets through. Um, and that would allow the water to still, you know, get up through there. Uh, and then uh, I would put a, a more aerated soil mix. So maybe something hi- higher in um, peat moss or um, lava rock or, you um, uh, what's the white one? Perlite. The, perlite, thank you. I don't use it anymore. so yeah. uh, <laughs> But uh, uh, it just gets too fluffy in aquaponics. It floats and ends up in the pumps and stuff. It's just, it just doesn't work for what I used to But Yeah, and
0: it turns into sand too eventually is what I've found.
1: Yeah, especially if it freezes. Uh, so will those hydrogen. If you ever take hydrogen and get it wet and then freeze it outside, it just ex- explodes into dust. Really?
0: Wow. That's new. I've never yeah, done that
1: it'll freeze and then when it thaws out it just crumbles to nothing. Um,
0: wow, I thought that stuff was indestructible.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I guess the water when it freezes just busts apart all the little porous, you know, whatever. Wow. But uh um, but then I you know, put that down, make sure I had a lot of uh, maybe an extra 30 to 40% um uh, aeration mixed into my soil mix and then you know a good soil compost above that again with maybe an extra 15 percent aeration beyond what a normal mix would have above that but the key is to have that extra aeration to let that airflow you know be a little bit uh, more than a normal soil mix with the wicking bits
0: okay yep we need those microbes to breathe and we don't want any an overwhelming amount of anaerobic back uh, microbes i'm guessing
1: Yep. Or if you do, you want the right ones. That's why you got to add the labs.
0: That's right. We want the right anaerobic ones. Okay. Beautiful. That sounds pretty simple. So as far as you could take a maybe a four-by-four four raised bed and then make it waterproof by adding some sort of a pond liner on the inside of it. Um, and then you start your layering. Uh, obviously, the first thing you're going to do is put that L-shaped pipe in, layer in you know, an inch or two of your lava rock um and then your weed barrier and then your aeration um and then your your soil mix okay um and how often do you think you're kind of messing with that l pipe and that valve drain and, and refilling things or topping things off
1: um you're going to check that maybe once or twice a week uh the cheat sheet we used to do is we'd make a little float out of styrofoam that would fit inside the pipe Ooh. and then we would just put tape on the different levels so it's almost like a dipstick. So as the water goes down, you can just visually look at it and see, oh, okay, well, the 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 tape, you know, the gap on the tape isn't there anymore because the water went down, and now you know it's time to fill it back up. So you can kind of make yourself a little, you know, for one or two bucks, you can make yourself a little indicator float.
0: That's super smart. I really like that. Okay. Um, the flood and drain kind of thing honestly sounds... What I want to get into as far as an aquaponics system and getting a tote with fish in it and then having some sort of a raised platform uh, with that media in it and have it drain and fill. How many times a day do you think you're going to drain and fill that, like maybe three or four times?
1: Oh, so with our flood and drain uh, with the, that we do for aquaponics, that's on a continuous cycle. So they're on a bell siphon or a loop siphon and they're flooding and draining every seven to 14 minutes. Uh, continuously, all day, every day. Um, And it acts like a diaphragm going up and down that creates that gas exchange that forces it through the the soils and the root zone, depending on if you're using regular aquaponics or dual-root zone aquaponics. Um, And uh, basically, that increased gas exchange causes a huge increase in growth acceleration. It's one of the reasons why you see faster growth in aquaponics because either in DWC, the high dissolved oxygen level in the water, or in the in the case of flood and drain, and we literally have a diaphragm action going on uh, to replace that air in the root system with fresh air each time.
0: Wow. Okay. So for me here now, I'm getting kind of selfish. I'm just thinking about my future dreams of, of aquaponics. And I, I absolutely love fish. I'm a, I'm a Pisces. So there's water and fish are... So important to me. The first thing I did with my new place when I got it was set up a fountain and, and a fish tank and, and get that going so I can hear that in the background and keep things going. But, um, you know, I want to set up a 275-gallon tote or multiples of them and have that flood and drain system in my backyard where, honestly, there's not a lot of sun. It's pretty limited on sun. Um, you know, what kind of crops do you think I can get going in there? And I'm, I'm not going to do cannabis. I just want to really keep those fish happy and just have something usable there.
1: So for not a lot of sun, brassicas are really good. Um, you know, uh, i trying to think of other ones. Onions and stuff can do well and lower uh, amounts of um, uh, light. I'm trying to think what else. Um, kale would be another one. And broccoli. Obviously, Nebraska's cabbages, lettuces, a lot of them don't need, you know, full sun, or in the summertime you don't want them to get full sun because they'll fry.
0: Really? Okay. That's encouraging because I'm really good into making my own salads a couple times a week and stuff like that. So I'd love to have some some lettuce and some baby leaf lettuce and just a good diversity of that. Make my own little spring mix.
1: That'd be cool. That's a big problem in Oklahoma and Texas and other southern areas. And you know, in the summertime it just gets so hot it gets hard to produce leafy greens.
0: So you'd have to do some sort of a shade cloth setup then, right? If you really had to, if you were full sun.
1: Yeah. So how we, how we handle it? Uh, usually is we'll put a geothermal system on it and then cool the system from underground because the ground's fifty eight degrees, sixty degrees, and you can pull that cold air out of the ground uh, as long as you have a big enough gap system, uh, and that helps you know reduce air conditioning costs. Um, you can also utilize that same methodology to cool the water. Uh, in that same way. And then again, like you were saying, combining it with shade cloths, even a lot of these larger facilities have ones that are more akin to almost like a light depth, except instead of being full depth, it's just, just different levels of shade. You know, so it's 15% on the pull the second one, now it's 30 and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, so they can play with that and adjust it as needed. Yep. Okay, so what is what's a big failure point or some big like areas like hey. You're going into SIPs, you're going into aquaponics, like the biggest learning curve, I guess, or the big hicc- big hiccups you could run into.
1: Uh, I think the biggest thing is just to make sure you go with the dual root zone setups. You have the level of control, uh, especially if you aren't familiar with it. It'll give you the ability to control things in a more familiar way, uh, something that's more akin to soil or hydro or something else. Um, that, uh, uh, you know, you can sit there and top dress or dose, you know, directly into the roots and things like that um, uh, as much as you can um, uh, with any other method uh, that you're used to. So it really kind of is like the training, not training meals, but like it just helps so much with control and it gives you the ability to just have, you know, a lot more flavor and a lot more just familiarity, I guess, than any other um, way I can put it.
0: That makes sense um have you ever done uh trout or any like other kind of fish in aquaponic systems i know they require very cold water 24 7 um is that one you try to stay away from because i just love trout
1: sure so there's a couple of different fish that we like to use normally we try to set people up with butterfly koi they're the mm-hmm. best uh, return on the dollar for especially cannabis producers now we have special issues with cannabis because uh, of cannabis production because in aquaponics uh, remember aquaponics is still a schely federal one substance or schedule one federal substance. Uh, so uh, that becomes an issue with uh, meat processing because aquaponics we want to kill and process the fish and meat processor or meat inspectors are federal employees through the uh, USDA. so they cannot come into a schedule one facility. <laughs> so this becomes uh, its own uniquely little weird loophole federal problem. <laughs> that we run into with aquaponics. So uh, to get around that, we, we can utilize a third-party company uh, that has a meat processing license that does, you know, game or fish processing or, you know, some other meat processing that just happens to be licensed for it and then have them process it. Or we can sell the fish whole on ice or live. Um, now, if you're the cheapest way for most producers to do it is just to get a pet trade license or an aquaculture license um, and then uh, our an, uh, imp- uh, aquaculture import export license, which you know, is significantly cheaper than you dealing with the meat processing uh, and then just selling stuff into the pet trade uh, or, or through a reseller that's going to sell it you know, with their own licensing. And that's really the more profitable way. That's why we, we generally recommend butterfly koi and other exotics. Um, uh, your return on dollar is going to be much better. And then if you want to do stuff for food donation and things like that, you can absolutely donate them to a the church or something else. There's lots of groups that I've worked with that do that. And there's actually used to be a group in California. I think they had issues with one of the fires. but um, They were growing with sturgeon and they actually had the state was paying for their Cannabis fertilizer, basically, uh, in the form of fish waste because the state was paying them so much per fish to uh, raise the sturgeon because there uh, so many aquaculture producers are, are not around anymore. And they needed to find someone that had large amounts of fish tanks that would keep the water in the right conditions uh, and uh, and produce the, the, the fish and get them up to a two or three year size to re-release into the wild. Well, that's, that's so perfectly cool. fine. And, and taking the fish waste off of that and utilizing it for your plants is, is great, right? So it was kind of a win-win for everybody involved. So you, know, there's, you never know where you'll be able to find the right business model that'll work for your farm. You might even be able to work directly with the state and get the state to help you grow, uh, depending on how you play your cards. But um, uh, as far as salmonids go, trout and salmonids, um, they can be much more challenging. Um, their tolerance of potassium much much lower than a lot of other fish so uh, especially running them in flowering systems they they tend to be not the best choice the other reason why they tend to not be the best choice is because they're carnivores with a higher protein intake and the higher the protein intake the more the nitrates uh, they're going to put out and you don't want to have high levels of nitrogen in flour anyway, because it's going to reduce bud size and cause stretching and everything else. So uh, an increased chance of hermaphroditic traits. So you don't want to have super high nitrogen anyway. So it's generally, even for that purpose as well, because of their waste, uh, if you're optimizing a larger scale system, it's, it's not ideal as well. And then the, the third thing would be temperature. Like you're saying, um, you'd have to run a decoupled system, which incredibly complicates uh, uh, the system significantly more than it needs to be uh, and um, just adds a lot of cost as well and overhead costs that you just don't need to have. Now, there is a few producers. There's um, Habitat Life, I think is the only current one doing salmonids and uh, cannabis, but they're, you know, really flirting or, they're, well, anyways, uh, they're, 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 they're not doing, uh, you know, they're kind of maximizing it around the plants more than the fish. You know what I mean? So it's not, not really like a a traditional aquaculture kind of return on the the speed of growth.
0: Mm. Okay. Awesome. Well, that's great to know. So those butterfly koi, it sounds like people are eating those as well as not just keeping them as pets?
1: No, no, no. They just, they have really good resale value. So you can resell them, you know, for every inch uh, gain, their dollar gained is the highest of anything that you could grow in your system. So if I grow them from a, a two or three inch fish out to a, you know, foot or two foot long fish, you know, they've gone from uh, you know three or four bucks up to you know forty to eighty dollars or more. So um, that's a significant step up in wholesale price uh, for me to resell them. Uh, that's actually enough for me to make a couple of bucks on. Uh, whereas tilapia, you're four to six bucks a pound and you know good luck trying to turn a profit on that. you know, it's just not profitable. Americans don't want to buy tilapia. Uh, at a high price, you know, because of how bad of a reputation it's gotten. Um, now you can sell them to Asian markets, you know, you can definitely grow different types of Asian fish and things like that, especially if you have an Asian market near you that's willing to buy them, uh, rest Asian restaurants, uh, there's lots of different additional fish that you can get into, just, you know, again, maximizing, doing a little bit of homework and maximizing what's going to work, as long as it meets the temperature range that you need for cannabis and that 66 to 70 degree uh, water temperature range, uh, you know, you're fine.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Um, So now I'm going to, after we get off this podcast, I'm going to start tearing into hours and hours of uh, sturgeon and what kind of uh, water they need and habitat they need, because I can tell you they don't need cold water and that's probably something I could have in my backyard. That would be, is that even, is that possible? I think that's possible, right?
1: Yeah. So I actually used to take care of a fish tank when I was a kid and used to be in the Aquarium Society in, in Pennsylvania and uh, one of the members there had two of every species of sturgeon known, including Huso huso, the Russian ones, and he paid a lot of money to get. Uh, but he had shovel nose sturgeons and the wow. uh, white sturgeons and all. And it was freaking cool. Uh, but you can absolutely get sturgeons uh, through the pet trade and through the aquaculture trade uh, that are aquaculture produced, not wild caught, obviously. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and raise them. You, you need quite a large facility, though. I mean, you're. I mean, those fish are eventually going to get six, eight feet long. So you got to, and the small ones get three to four. So, you know, you need at least a three to 6,000 gallon tank or bigger. Wow. Yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, maybe that'll happen on my parents' farm when I build that big giant pond I wanted to do. You know, that'll be nice. They got eight acres up in the foothills towards Tahoe. So, we to always want to dig some deep holes and and uh, we know if we can get it nice and deep we can keep some trout in there because the groundwater would stay cold enough but man to have some trout and some sturgeon in there oh my gosh that'd be that'd be pretty cool so maybe I'll leave that uh, uh, for a project for the farm not for my backyard in Sacramento
1: <laughs> I, I know that there are some uh, other aquaponic facilities that are doing sturgeon for caviar so production so
0: Nice, nice. That that's very interesting to me, and that's stuff that uh, I'm uh, very obviously passionate about is is the fish and the plants, and, and getting those fish and plants to work together. And I think you're just bringing it so much together for me. I'm going to end up doing an aquaponic system of some kind before, just because I love fish and plants. So that's awesome. Um, any other cautionary? I know you've you've been through God every single type of system possible. Um, what do you think is the least
1: viable? least viable I think the the least viable in terms of actual like cannabis production would be oh man I'd have to think on it aeroponics probably because if anything goes wrong it just crashes so easily it's like you know just so fragile Uh, I I don't see anyone long-term commercially doing that in a way that makes sense um, and then it's just, there's not enough microbes in it to stimulate, you know, it's kind of the, almost the same problem you have with hydro. There's not enough microbes there to stimulate the um, uh, immune system of the plant. So those plants will always be inferior in terms of terpene expression.
0: Yeah. And they're constantly flushing the lines with stuff to kill the microbes, you know, even if they're feeding microbes and they're flushing the lines and killing microbes. So probably a huge die off, a lot of surviving and working through it and stuff, but huge die off, I'd imagine.
1: Yeah, and especially as we learn more and more and more about endophytes and all the rest and how big of a role that they play, it's just goofy at this point to consider going back to some of the practices we used to do.
0: Yeah, seriously, and, and and endophytes, for anybody that doesn't know it, and please, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong or stop me, but endophytes are specific microbe species that go and get food for the plant, come back to the plant, and will actually be able to enter the plant's surface, enter the plants, and release... It's it's food, it's nitrogen, it's minerals, it's phosphorus, it's potassium, anything like that that it wouldn't get for the plant. And then the plant says, I need more of this, and gives it sugar, I believe, and then it goes out and gets more of that stuff. Is that correct?
1: Did I picture uh, yeah. that? There's definitely some of the relationships. A lot of times with endophytes – uh, so ectophytes would be the ones that actually go outside of the plant, uh, and, uh, and then endophytes are the ones that actually live inside the plant the whole time and actually play a role in the plant's immune system or growth or other you know, important processes. You know We have thousands of different types of endophytes. That's what the Human, uh, the human Biome Project is about, is, is mapping all those different ones and what their roles are um, in humans. Um, but those same things are happening in plants, and we don't even understand half of them. You know, a lot of them also have different roles. Trichoderma um, can be pathogenic or it can be beneficial. You know, you have fusarium in a lot of cases uh, uh, is is absolutely not pathogenic uh, in low populations and actually is a, is a beneficial root microbe until it gets above a certain population and then it starts to eat plant tissue, right? So um, there, there's lots of different things that... Um, Uh, have different roles and do different things and that's another reason why it's important not to just lump something in and say oh well if this is present it's always bad well that's usually not even the case. Uh, another good example of that would even be like um, thrips, right? If I have thrips and spider mites on a plant, uh, or you know, I find both of them on a plant, I'm going to treat the spider mites first because thrips actively feed on spider mites because protein from meat is a lot easier for them to convert into energy than protein from plants, right? So kill the you know work together with them and then kill them second, right? So it just is mm. another. So you can, but that you can find examples of that on a microbial level too, you know, uh, uh, not just thrips and spider mites. So it's just kind of the thing where uh, learning to work with a lot of these things that we you know, tried to black and white label before, uh, uh, rather than trying to, uh, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of misinformation that's been put out a lot lately as to microbes and being good and bad and all the rest. And I think a lot of it is just uneducated by people that are trying to make things black and white and on a topic that simply is, you know, every color of the rainbow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh yeah, man, that's crazy. So not not asking you to give up your your latest meat meat and potatoes of your latest podcasts or anything like that, but. What is something that you think you've learned lately that was very impactful to you? And I guess this would peek into, you know, hey, you got to go back to the, the Growing With Fishes podcast to get everything and the full details of it. But what's something that's really impacted you lately?
1: Um, uh, there's definitely some of the stuff I learned from Chris Trump. Recent, uh, I learned from, well, originally learned from it in Africa, but we've been applying it here too, um, from Chris Trump. And we started screwing around with it in Zimbabwe. Uh, and he was on the show a couple of weeks ago and was talking about it as well as the IPMO, which is the um, taking IMO, like a traditional uh, IMO collection, uh, and taking 30% of the rice and replacing it with insect frass or insect corpses, you know, grasshopper corpses or, okay. or whatever your target insect is, if you're able to collect that much. Uh, Again, it just depends on what it is you're going after. And then mixing that with the rice, uh, cooking it down about 75% of the way, similar to IMO, maybe not quite as long, um, just to try and totally not liquefy the bug parts, obviously. Um, (laughs) And then uh, strain that off and then put that out as your rice collection boxes and to help collect a lot of those um, microbes that feed on those insect corpses and their exoskeletons and, and that are pathogenic to the microbes. But you're also um, that those saprophytic fungi immediately feeding on that are also providing a bunch of chitinase um, because those fungi are immediately breaking down those insects as well into those secondary products that, active, uh, that activate those plant's immune system. So taking that and also utilizing it for LIMO sprays uh, basically, you're, you're hyping the plants up to defend themselves against that insect and you're gathering local parasitic fungi um, that will potentially, um, you know, attack that insect directly. So you're kind of doing two birds, one stone uh, with one simple collection in a similar manner to how you would do that for your root microbes. You know, we can apply this to pest management as well. And I think that that just that concept alone really opened a whole new bunch of doors for me and, and made me about a whole new bunch of ways to do it there's also another gentleman who was uh, uh was on the show I, I talking about a similar method uh, i believe it was the same episode on slug collections so collecting slugs that especially ones that look like they're injured in the night and then putting them in like a a, a container with water and then putting a a, a a island of leaves that floats in the middle for them to all to kind of um you know survivor island it's uh, yeah. basically Force all of them to become infected with the parasitic nematodes that naturally occur in your area. So you find the ones that are leaking or kind of are injured, uh, those ones often have those parasitic nematodes. So you're basically using it as a um, spawning vat for the nematodes to feed on the slu- you know, slugs that are now being used as uh, breeding vessels uh, and then collecting the slime off of the edge of the leaf pile. Uh, and then utilizing that as a, a spray for the roots around your plants to eliminate, uh, basically inoculate with uh, nematodes for uh, wiping out uh, slugs in your area. So those types of ideas uh, are, are similar to to like the soil collection stuff, where you're, you're you know gathering these things from your property. But people hadn't kind of taken that concept. At least I hadn't been exposed to it to pest management until maybe the last two years. So that was. Mm kind of a super cool thing for me to think about and something that I hadn't, you know, thought about. And yeah, you have JWS and and all that kind of stuff, but not necessarily in that same type of inoculation, you know, way. Yeah. I guess for lack of a better term.
0: I definitely just learned something there and I'm going to go back and watch those episodes there. And and what do you think uh, for your Growing With Fishes podcast, like thinking back, you're like, oh my God, that was the best episode ever. What do you think? Do you have one that sticks in your mind?
1: I don't know about best episode ever. <laughs> um, man, I mean, I, I could tell you which one's gotten the most views and stuff, but I, you know, uh, we have a super cut. I, I'm going to, I actually, I just crashed. I got to re, I got to re recompile it, but I'm doing a super cut of one we did with Frenchie. Frenchie just passed um, so that he was always really fun to have on the show um but uh i mean i learned a ton from uh chris trump every time he's been on um brendan strath from spectrum king on lighting i've learned an absolutely ridiculous amount with his episodes i've never heard Uh, of him uh, dr robert faust in his first episode talking about soil microbes Mm. um i'm trying to think what else dragonfly earth medicines always dropping a ton of knowledge whenever they come on so i i can't even think of one i think there's just lots of people that are putting out a ton of good information and um late the last person we had on uh uh was uh rasta bob last week and he was talking about growing in jamaica and traditional jamaican grow methods and some of the traditional Mm -hmm. fertilizers Mm -hmm. and stuff and ferments and pest control methods that they use there so that was really cool too to kind of learn like jamaican natural farming you know
0: I, I love hearing about how uh, people cultivate cannabis in other climates besides my own. Uh, it took me a really long time, probably three or four years, just to understand my climate and what was going on and what was humidity and and UV and all this kind of stuff, you know, without any education. I'm just, you know, learning by failure in a certain sense. But um it's really interesting to go back and see how people do it in other climates, especially the high humidity climates, that scares the crap out of me. Um, you know, I know that's what you guys are dealing with a lot of times there in Oklahoma as well.
1: Yeah, the key to dealing with humidity is just proper microbial inoculation of your, your stuff to prevent, um, you know, mold spores. So making sure you're doing labs and uh, Bactillus subtilis, Bactillus pamillus, and making sure that you're just keeping, you know, kind of a, a an active defense force on your leaves uh, really is the biggest way to, to kind of stop those issues until they, they get into the point where they can defend themselves fully.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that goes into the right stuff to be spraying at the right time in flower. Um, you know, people are so scared about spraying stuff in flower and it goes back to, you know, covering the leaf surface with beneficial microbes to make sure you're out competing any of those spores and, and really dialing that stuff in, I think is a whole new world that people need to discover. And, you know, even if you see a couple of mold spores popping up, maybe that's the time to just go crazy with that stuff and try to stop it. So, yeah. Do you got anything else that you think, um, we missed on here or haven't touched on that you were been thinking about?
1: Um. Just the if people aren't aware, uh, I guess the only other thing I could think of off the top of my head, I also have a, a whole online training school. If you guys are looking to learn more about aquaponics from kind of a start to finish, um, uh, kind of way, we also do two live sessions each month, and then constantly have new content every month. We have a whole new section on uh, how to mill your own greenhouse. So how to buy a, a wood mill. And oh, we I saw
0: that. Yeah,
1: and start milling them down and making a greenhouse. We we have over half of it filmed. Uh, we had to put a temporary pause due to the fire ban there, but as soon as they let us, we'll, we'll finish filming that. But we have a bunch of that all ready to go, and, and we're just finishing editing that, so that'll be up soon. And a bunch of other cool content. And we have a ton of microscope content we've been working on for KNF stuff, and a, and a bunch of long form explanations with microscope, you know, images and, and video of, as to what it is that you're looking at, why, and and you know what it is that's going on in that KNF stuff, because there isn't a lot of you know things where they explain those two things. Uh, together into one um, one thing. There's a lot of talks on KNF, but there is, and a lot of stuff on, on micro, uh, microbial work with KNF, but not a lot where they're kind of combined into one lecture. So, um, doing a lot of that stuff as well. And then um, uh, working on some books coming out hopefully the end of this year, beginning of next year on aquatic KNF as well as aquaponics, uh, aquaponic cannabis. Um, so, but you can check out the class over at uh, apmjclass.com. And then we also have newts if you want, you know, kind of an easy easy way to, to get your nutrients rock upon a canvas growing over apmjnudes.com um, After the thousandth person asked me, what do I dose and how much I just went, you know what, let me just partner up with somebody and at least get, you know, something that's labeled and, and addressed specifically for that. Um, so you can pick how many weeks of veg and flour you want for your strains, and then you can get a weekly packet that you put in that kind of helps make it make it easy and brainless the same way that people have their part A, part B. Um, until you get used to everything, it kind of makes it as simple as we can. Um, you can always dose up a two or three times that if you feel the plant needs to feed a little heavier. Um, they're all kept within ratio so that nothing gets too out of whack. So,
0: Wow, that is awesome, man. There's so much like here I didn't know about that I like, is keeping me from doing a system that you kind of just answered for me. So that's awesome, man.
1: Yeah, the the biggest barriers with aquaponics is people feel like, oh, this is complicated or I don't know what to do. So we try to make it as simple as humanly possible. Um, We kind of do the same thing with our commercial. We have a commercial service we do for aquaponics uh, where we manage over half a million gallons of commercial systems. We test their water every month and and send them, you know, custom nutrient packets for that to rebalance their stuff for veggies too. So, um, you know, we... It's all that as part of, you know, we can't get everyone to switch to aquaponics unless we can make it as simple as, you know, a part A, part B, or as simple as some of the other stuff that's out there that we're competing with. And yeah. if we're going to win people over through education, we have to make it simple at least to get started. So it uh, took a while to figure that out, but it's definitely a, a big goal of mine. Great. Great.
0: Well, obviously, if anybody has any questions or, you know, important things they need to talk to or ask Steve, you know, hit him up on his social media through potentponics.com or I'm sure um, potentponics at Gmail and all that good stuff. There's a million ways to reach out to the man and he'd love to help you clearly. Um, And some great conversations going on there. do you have any tips? This is one question I keep uh, asking everybody at the end of the show, and it keeps working out so well, and you were definitely mentioned a couple of times. Um, do you have anybody you would suggest for me to bring on to the show and have a great, as a great guest?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would definitely suggest Chris Trump or Wendy Kornberg or um, uh, Brendan Strath, uh, probably the first three that come to mind.
0: Great, great. I know um, I need to reach out to Chris Trump. I haven't ever had a chance to connect with him. So um, I'd, I'd love to uh, give him a forum here and a chance to uh, explain things and, and uh, bring in um, uh, a, a great information platform of the anaerobic microbes that I have been staying away from. Honestly, I'll be open about that. I am an aerobic kind of guy. I haven't done anything else with the anaerobic ones, but it's a whole new world. I think I've got enough information on the aerobic side that I want to learn about the anaerobic side,
1: definitely. The kind of thing of it like this, so you have compost teas and, and all of that with your different inputs are the aerobic way to do it. But especially when it comes to converting plants, like if you're going to use Dr. Duke's Uh, plant lists for making compost, or you're going to use some of the other uh, compost um, bioaccumulator lists out there. Um, A lot of those are much better if you ferment them. So doing them as FPJs, or even we call them plant labs, which is basically like lactobacillus FPJ for without the sugar. We just mix it with labs instead. Um, But those... Can unlock compounds that simply cannot be unlocked in in an oxidative environment. Things like Mm. phycocyanin isolate that we use for injured plants, or as just a raw growth accelerator, Uh, and some of the other advanced uh, natural farming methods that we're getting into now um, simply can't be done in an aerobic environment. And your your the amount of minerals that are unlocked in those um, uh, outputs are much much uh lower in an aerobic environment because of oxidation than in an anaerobic environment where they aren't oxidized so they tend to be much more hyper plant available you just need to make sure that you have the right competitive excluders to make sure that you don't have any nasties uh taken over but um it's not something that should be afraid of it's kind of the other half of the coin right you have a uh, uh two different ways to unlock the nutrients in a substance uh one of them is aerobic the other half is anaerobic um anaerobic can be a little bit easier to screw up but it definitely isn't something that people should be afraid of great great
0: well that's that's great to know and i need to get i need to get my thinking hat on and and start learning and um you know you you brought me into a little bit there and make me feel a lot more comfortable about it so um thank you thank you man um Obviously, we've had a crazy week here. Um, We lost Frenchie. Um, I was looking back and just realizing I suck at taking pictures because there's so many times when I got to hang out with that guy, um, you know, whether I'm walking by and he's loading up the hookah and there was a couple extra straws left, and he's like, come on over here, man, and... Um, famous picture of me on social media that's floating around somewhere that I can't find right now of of when Frenchie Cannoli came to uh, the uh, Sacramento uh, High Times thing and uh, the news cameras were walking by and all caught us. And there was one thing where they focused in on me and I was hitting that thing like, like going crazy with it like that because he was putting tangy on there, man, and that is my favorite strain. Anything with Tangi or anything like that. And I got a first taste of that hash, that aged hash with that tangy, and I just went crazy. So um, we lost a great man there, Frenchie. Um, he was a beautiful person. So, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, awesome, dude. I had many, many good times together and uh, just funny as shit. And just always smiling
0: yeah it's it's uh definitely great to have those people with a constantly have a positive vibe vibe and just so positive that I mean it made me pour more positive uh, and throughout the day so thank you so much steve for for coming on here and just dumping dumping this knowledge uh free source and open obviously that's just who you are and what you do and what you've always done. So I thank you so much for, for who you are and what you do and um, and all the education you put out. It's just amazing, man.
1: Yeah, thank you, and uh, thanks for having me on and uh, and putting out the education that you put on. I know you put a lot of hard work into it as well.
0: Thank you. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming on here, and uh, don't forget to throw us some likes, throw us some reviews. Leave us comments because I'm reading them. I'm looking. Just tell me what y'all want. So. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for coming on. You have a great day, man.
1: You too.